Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of BioBytes. My name is Sophia Ding, and today we're joined by Carol Fries, who is the DaCosta Professor of Cell and Molecular Biology at Columbia University. Professor Preeves is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her current research focuses on the structure and function of the P53 tumor suppressor protein. Professor Preeves, thank you for being here today. Thank you. So I will start with questions that give us uh, just a bit more context. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you become interested in cell and molecular biology? So I was born and raised in Canada, in Montreal, and I went to McGill. And um, for a number of reasons, not all of which were uh, very uh, typical, I decided to go into science instead of arts. So McGill divided, um, McGill had two programs for bachelor, bachelor of arts and bachelor of science. And I went into the bachelor of science because I had a really good high school biology teacher and I was kind of interested in biology and uh, that was one of the reasons. And um, I ended up studying um, psychology for one semester and then I got interested in biochemistry and I ended up studying biochemistry and I liked it. I found it very interesting. Um, and at the end of that, I um, decided to go for a PhD and I decided um, to stay in Montreal. In fact, unlike students such as yourself or the vast, vast majority of students in this country, I actually lived at home while, while I went to college because um, why, why not? I mean, the, 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 our, our house was in the same city as, as the university I went to. So um, then there were two general interests I think of young people then and I believe young people now and that is the two I guess challenges um, that lie ahead are understanding cancer and how we what we can eventually do to solve the problem of this terrible disease and understanding the brain and so I was sort of dithering between cancer and the brain and I decided to do my PhD, or I applied to do my PhD with a then very, I guess, senior, uh, quite well-known um, scientist who had been recruited from England um, many years earlier. And in order to recruit him, uh, the largest department store in Montreal um, gave their, their mansion to McGill to be given to him to create an institute. And so basically, we, we worked in a very fancy house with fireplaces and moldings and chandeliers. It was very unusual. But when I went to interview with him, he said, what are you interested in? I said, I'm interested in cancer and the brain. Hmm. So he said, well, and I'd been on a tour of this institute. So downstairs with the grand ballroom and living room and the second floor had beautiful bedrooms with fireplaces. The third floor had tiny little rooms, must have been for the servants. And so he said, well, the brain is upstairs on the third floor and cancer's on the second floor. So I decided to become a cancer researcher because I didn't want to trudge up three floors every day and work in a little room by myself. Mm -hmm. 
So that's how I became a cancer researcher. Most people, when they say they, it's always been their dream to, you know, cure this terrible disease. I mean, it is has been my dream, but the real reason why I went into cancer research was very selfish. So after getting a PhD there, eventually I ended up getting married, and we ended up moving south of the border, as it's called, in Canada, and sadly never came back to Canada, which is a wonderful country. Um, and uh, my research took me first to New York, where I did a postdoc, and then um, from there to Israel, where I spent um, a few years at the Weizmann Institute, which is a great institute, and then back to the United States, and after a sabbatical at the NIH, I got my first position at Columbia, and I've been here ever since. Oh. So that's my history, that's, personal history. Yeah, that's definitely quite a journey. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, you've had a journey, too. We all had journeys. Yeah, that's, yeah, for sure. And I guess just moving on to a little bit more, a little bit more about like your research itself. Okay. Um, I mean, could you tell us like how did you came to focus okay. on P fifty three? Good, good, good question. So when I was in Israel, um, I ended up working on a virus called SV forty, Simian virus forty, and you probably don't know this. I don't think you know it, but the original sock vaccine um, that basically prevented this horrible disease polio from infecting children worldwide was developed by Jonas Salk, of course, who was experimenting with how you can isolate what we call a non-pathogenic variant of polio. And it's a very traditional way of a vaccine, very old-fashioned in a way, but it works. If you have a non-pathogenic version of a virus that you can inject into people, they will mount, um, I guess, protective antibodies against it. I'm being very simplistic now. And that would prevent infection with a more pathogenic variant. And he was using, um, for some reason, the kidney cells of African green monkeys to grow this virus, probably because they were a, a, what we call a permissive host. Mm -hmm. But when he iso isolated um, the virus, he found many other viruses. And one of these viruses he called simian virus 40, simian because he got it out of these monkeys. And um, people started to study it because it had a small genome of 5,000 base pairs. I don't know how much molecular biology you yet have had, but um, it was actually an incredibly important virus for people because they were able to study it actually a little before gene cloning became developed. Mm -hmm. And it was essentially, as some people say, the only game in town for being able to really study um, a a genome, because it was small, it was about 5,000 base pairs, it was circular. The very first restriction enzyme map was made with this. And they discovered along the way that this virus, if you injected it into baby mice, those mice would get tumors. Um, also, if you infected um, mouse, normal mouse cells, those mouse cells would become transformed. And they isolated the gene in the virus that was responsible for this, and they called it the large tumor antigen. I won't get into why they called it that. But a few years later, people who had antibodies against this antigen um, discovered that when they immunoprecipitated, I don't know if you can explain this, when they brought down this protein that was viral, 
they always found another protein associated with it that seemed to have a molecular weight of around 53,000 Daltons. So they gave it this rather boring name of P53, <laughs> protein 53. And um, for about 10 years, a few years later, the gene was cloned by a friend of mine in Israel. Um, one of the discoveries was a man named um, Arnold Levine. Um, and his postdoc, my friend Moshe, cloned the gene. And um, for about 10 years, people thought it was an oncogene. Um, because when they, around that time, oncogenes had been discovered. So to just back up a little bit, for those who haven't taken my cancer biology course that I teach every spring, except this spring, which I'm taking off to redesign the course. Um, uh, it turns out that when a cell becomes cancerous, it's because of changes in the DNA. And there are two basic classes of changes. Cha and these are um, changes I'm referring to are mutations. And so um, mutations uh, can cause um, a, norm, a normal gene to become a cancer-causing gene. And there's some very famous ones. I don't know if you've heard of RAS or some of these other genes. I won't get into that. But a, somewhat um, after that, a little after oncogenes were discovered, it was discovered that very often cancers, especially, and people were studying these largely in human patients at the time, also had sections of their genome deleted, or parts of it deleted. And, um, and it became clear from other people's work that um, there are a class of genes whose function is to protect cells from becoming cancer. And they're called tumor suppressor genes. So at the very beginning, people thought P53 that binds to T antigen, which causes cancer uh, in mice, um, was an oncogene this P53 protein, the gene that encoded it, was encoding a protein that causes cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but then, I can't explain exactly how they figured it out, but they realized that they were isolating the gene from cancer cells, patients' cancer cells. And I don't quite, oh yes, here's how it happened. So a scientist at Johns Hopkins named Bert Vogelstein, in hunting for tumor suppressors, discovered that the most frequently lost or mutated gene in cancer was p53 and so somebody else arnold levine put the idea in together saying wait we've been isolating this gene from cancer cells why, why don't we look at it from normal cells and when they isolated from normal cells they found that that gene could suppress cancer whereas all these other mutant genes um, could cause cancer so basically in its, in its simplest form, I don't know if I'm explaining this clearly, in its what we call normal wild-type form, P53 is a tumor suppressor, but when it gets mutated, um, it becomes an oncogene. So it's a switch. It's like, uh, you know, the good P53 and the bad P53. Right. Yeah. So that's, so where did my research come in? So I was very interested in SV40, and to make a very long story short, SV40 was not only one of the most useful viruses for understanding how a genome is organized, this is, you know, uh, this was in the 70s and even early 80s, but um, it was also the very first genome that could be replicated um, by the hosts, by the, ho by the cell's DNA replication machinery. And so they used that 
um, that system, as we call it, the SV40 system, to really purify many of the factors that we know are needed for our, our cells to copy their DNA. It was a hugely important virus in that respect. And um, I ended up, I was very interested in that, and I ended up doing a sabbatical at the Sloan Kettering with one of the more distinguished uh, DNA replication uh, enzymologists. And I, I realized when I was working there that either he had an army of, of students and postdocs feverishly working on purifying all these factors. And it didn't seem to be of any interest to them that the, the protein they were using to sort of start this process was SV40T antigen, which not only does it, uh, so uh, I will now explain to you how it works, and it'll bring us back to B53. But um, so the, the SV40T antigen is the viral DNA replication initiation protein, but it also binds to other proteins. It binds to P53, as I just explained, and it binds to another protein called RB. Okay, RB stands for retinoblastoma. And if you have deletions in your retinoblastoma gene, among other things, you'll get retinoblastoma. It's a rare form of, of retinal cancer, cancer of your retina, your eye. So, um, so I realized when I was working there, and I know that there were several other labs competing crazily to see who could be the first to put together the whole thing and say, look, we can do DNA replication mm -hmm. in vitro, in a test mm -hmm. tube, essentially. And nobody cared about P53. So <laughs> I was very excited about that. Mm -hmm. And so um, we figured out, with the help of a very wonderful baculovirologist, a woman who sadly passed away several years ago, how to make large quantities of P53. And that gave us a really big advantage because we started to study it as a real protein. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that it binds to DNA and it can serve as a transcription factor. And we then ended up doing some other studies about it. It's a, the, the field of people that studies P53 is quite large. Um, it's probably the most scrutinized gene in cancer and possibly in, in mammalian biology. If you type in P53 into PubMed, you'll get I don't know, 120,000 uh, hits, essentially. And so it's a fascinating protein. For sure. So we've been working on it till this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just going... I, most of the answers to the other questions won't be so long-winded. Don't worry. No worries. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, a lot to hear. Like, it's like a great... Yeah. Great <laughs> like, lesson to learn, for sure. Yeah, and then... So just diving into P53 a little bit more, um, as you continue researching on P53, uh, sometimes you also did some um, studying to P63 uh, and P73? Yes, yes, much less. Um, in fact, if you type in P63 or P73, you'll get about 10% of the hits that you see with P53. People... Um, as soon as the gene was cloned and people realized how important and interesting this protein is, mm -hmm. I should say, I'll tell you now, there are three reasons why it's important. I, maybe I mentioned this when we met the first time. The first is that it's the most frequently mutated gene in all of human cancer by far, okay? Um, and I won't say that every single kind of cancer has, mu has uh, mut 
a very high proportion of the patients have mutant p53 in their tumor, but most do. Certainly ovarian cancer, um, colon cancer, um, esophageal cancer, lung cancer, colon, I said colon cancer already, ovarian cancer. Um, they have very, very high proportion of p53 mutations, and there's less and less. And in some cases, it's only the most bad versions of those cancers that have mutated p53. It's quite interesting. Um, there's a lot of mysteries about this protein, to say the least, even though, as I was saying before, it's a very highly scrutinized protein, and every couple of years there's a p53 meeting where people just get together to talk about their work on p53 and there's usually several hundred people there and these are just a rep you know like if I go to that meeting maybe one or two lab members will come with me but many are still working back in the lab so you know you can say there's a few hundred people at these meetings there must be a few thousand people actually you know every day working on this protein um, so uh, what about P63 and P73? So somewhere along the way, there were two things people were very interested in. They knew there was a P53 gene in mice. And um, as I was trying, as I was sort of, I'm sort of meandering, but one of the proofs that it's a P53, that it's a, a tumor suppressor, genetic proof, is that if you knock out P53, in other words, you prevent the P53 gene either completely delete the p53 gene or prevent it from being expressed into a protein in a mice in a mouse that mouse will get cancer with 100% certainty it'll get certain kinds of cancer it'll get lymphomas and sarcomas largely um, I can explain more about that in a little while if you're interested in but there's another um, proof much closer to home for us humans which is um, I don't know 40 years ago or something, two very um, distinguished epidemiologists called Frederick Lee and Joseph Frommany um, were documenting these families where uh, members got cancer at a very young age, sometimes infants, and the women got breast cancer with very high frequency, and um, there were a very high uh, frequency of sarcomas and brain cancer, a certain set of cancers, not all not all cancers. Um, and they realized that this had to be an inherited syndrome because they could, they could basically show that, uh, you know, they could trace it, you know, with doing family tree analysis, epidemiology analysis. Um, as after the p53 gene was cloned and it was realized that it was a tumor suppressor, a couple of groups um, decided to sequence the genome of these families and found that they had a mutation in p53. So they, in, in these families, there's all, you, as you probably know, you know, the vast majority of your genes are present in two copies and from maternally and paternally derived. So these were the same thing. And in these families, only one of the alleles, as we call them, is mutated and the other one is not. And they get cancer with very high frequency, almost like 100%. So that's genetic proof in humans that it's a tumor suppressor. Mm -hmm. um, and very often, by the way, when these patients' tumors are studied, they have lost the normal, what we call wild-type version of the gene, mm -hmm. but not always. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So those are the, the two kinds of genetic proofs. You knock it out of mice, mice get cancer. Cancer-prone families, quite rare, thankfully, 
um, have uh, mutations in their p53 genes. Mm. Is there something special about p53 that makes it stand out from its homolog? Oh, okay. So yes, I thank you for reminding me. I mean, okay, so the, why am I saying this? I'm I'm saying this for two reasons. First of all, people became very interested, sort of, you know, in evolution. Where did this gene evolve from? They started looking in lower and low, lower and lower organisms. Um, I don't know enough of that. I should about this. They they found it in worms, the kind of worms that Professor Iva Greenwald and Martin Shelfy study, Oliver Hobart. They found it. These are called C. elegans um, worms. They're tiny little round worms that are in, in a fantastic model genetic system. They found them in fruit flies, another very famous model system. It's not in yeast. But it is in certain, I guess, eukaryote-like um, single-celled organisms like archaea. I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think so. Mm -hmm. um, another very important aspect of p53, before we move on, is the fact that um, people found very early on after the protein was discovered and was found to be an oncogen, a tumor suppressor, that it binds to a protein called MDM2. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'll tell you about that in a little while if you're interested. But P63 and P73, to come back to that. So the other thing people were looking for was, are there other members of this family? Because most genes are part of families, right? You know, they that have evolved in, in various different ways to do different things in, in animals and tissues. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know exactly when, but perhaps in the late 1990s, um, they found both a, another a homologue, and they called it just for convenience p63 and p73. So they'd be, I mean, their molecular masses aren't quite exactly. It's not so neat. But um, what do we know about them? P63 is very important in skin biology. If you knock p63 out of a mouse, the mouse will not be born. I mean, it'll be born, but it'll be poor thing will be dead within a two weeks. It just basically loses its skin, and they don't have their their mammary glands don't develop. It's a very interesting developmental gene. Yeah. I don't know enough about p seventy three, but these mice live longer, and there's been some very interesting work showing it has roles in lung function and and, and neural function. But they're not classical tumor suppressors. You don't find them lost. Um, in cancer, and you don't find them. You don't find the same spectrum of mutations that you find in p53. So the really interesting question is, what's different about p53 and its family members? They all contain the ability to bind specifically to a set of DNA, a sequence in DNA, and the sequence is quite similar. So there's probably other differences about these proteins that we don't fully understand. It's definitely really interesting. It's very interesting. We've done work on P63 and P73 as well, but mm. in fact, even now we're working on it. Exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think going back to P53 itself, um, because it's such an important gene, and you talk about how it, uh, it's almost like a switch on and off. Yeah. Um, could we talk a little bit more about its regulations? like? Well, how is it regulated? Yeah. Okay, well, that, now we've come back to the MDM2. So, there, in a general, there, as a general rule, um, the most important molecules in our cells are proteins. This is probably not a fair thing to say, but at least the building blocks and the functional um, activities in our cells are carried out by, by proteins. 
Um, and there's two ways proteins are regulated in a simple way. One is whether or not the messenger RNA for these proteins is being made so that it can be translated into the proteins. And there's a huge interest in transcriptional regulation. And I'll tell you, P53 itself is a transcriptional regulator. But the other uh, way in which proteins levels are regulated is by their the, by by degrading them by the by basically the rate at which they're degraded so basically the rate at which a protein in a, your cell is a function of the activity of its messenger and the rate of its degradation okay so there are machines in cells um, some of them very simple just simple molecules and others whole machines of proteins that are um, degrading machines, and the most famous and well-studied of these is called the proteasome. It's a very complex machinery, um, and that involves a set of proteins which we call E3 ligases that attach to the protein that's going to be degraded, and then that attached to something called an E2 ligase, which then attaches to an E1 ligase. This is very simplistic. Okay. And this, this is brought over to this huge machine called the proteasome, and it's brought into the proteasome, and it's degraded in it. And the process involves adding a molecule called the ubiquitin, a chain of ubiquitins. It's, I can't remember the molecular weight now, but it's linked, you get a whole chain of them, mm -hmm. and that's the signal for this machine to degrade them. So that's the mechanism by which cells are degraded. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that MDM2 is an E3 ubiquitin ligase, and it degrades, it basically targets P53 for degradation. And it's a good thing that it does, because if you didn't have MDM2 in your cells, the P53 in your cells would kill you. Mm -hmm. So P53 is a very potent molecule, it can, it can cause either cell death or a process called cell cycle arrest or a process called senescence where the cells move into a state of, like you'd say, suspended animation where they can't divide anymore. Mm -hmm. And it has many other activities as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, it induces many kinds of cell death. So, um, so how do we know MDM2 is so important? So this is a brilliant genetic experiment that was done by a friend and colleague who's at MD Anderson many years ago. As soon as people discovered MDM2, they wanted to do with it what had been done with P53. In fact, when anybody discovers any interesting gene, the first thing they try to do is knock it out of a mouse and look to see what happens to the poor little mouse. Sometimes nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Other times the mouse might get some kind of a disease or have some other, you know, noticeable morphological changes, changes in its fur, changing in size and its eating habits, its learning ability, all kinds of things. Mice are an amazing genetic system. Um, sometimes you can't make a mouse because it's what we call an early embryonic lethal. Without that gene, the embryo can't develop. Mm -hmm. So when they did the MDM2 knockout, they got an early embryonic lethal phenotype, no mice, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but then the, my colleague and friend, and another group as well, why no one, um, had the brilliant idea of combining knocking out MDM2 and P53 to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then they got full mice. And so, and when they looked at the, um, when, then they went back and looked at the embryos of um, the 
MDM2 only knockout mouse that were just not making it. They got past, they didn't get past the fifth day of just, of after the, after the egg is fertilized. Um, they saw that all the cells were undergoing cell death. And we already knew at the time that P53 induces cell death. And then they saw the, and then, I don't know, that they, that's, that's what they saw. But at, around that time, maybe a year or two later, people discovered that MDM2 itself can target P53 for degradation. So um, putting it all together, and then they started to doing, now it's possible to do very fancy things in mice. You can target just the heart or the, in other words, you can, you can arrange it so that you can get a full, fully functional mouse, but then you feed the mouse some kind of a, 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 a molecule. I just, I'm, I'm being simplistic mm -hmm. now. And then suddenly you'll target the liver and the liver, you know, some, your gene that you're interested in will either go away from the, not be made in liver or be made in higher levels or be a mutant. You can do all kinds of fancy things. Mm -hmm. So they started targeting different organs in the mice and they discovered whenever they knocked out MDM2, the organ went into failure. And, other, and the reason for that is very simple. MDM2 is needed to keep the levels of P53 very low until it's needed. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, when is it functional? And the idea is that what we now know that P53 is what we call a stress response factor. Mm -hmm. If you have cells and you irradiate them or you treat them with many kinds of chemotherapeutics, mm -hmm. all of these damage DNA and P53 and DNA damage elicits what we call a signal transduction pathway that we understand quite well now that impinges on P53 and MDM2. And it causes them to no longer interact with each other. P53 levels go up. It gets much more active. And it induces either cell cycle rest, cell death, or any number of other outcomes that we and others are studying. So how does this work? It turns out that when you phosphorylate, I'm sorry, when you um, irradiate cells or treat them with chemotherapeutics, mm -hmm. um, you get... Um, you activate the signal pathway. There's actually a series of what we call protein kinases that add phosphate groups onto amino acids. And there are key phosphates in P53 and MDM2 that prevent them from interacting with each other. So that's another, dis we, we contributed to that discovery too along the way. So Yeah, you talk about like protein kinases. Like, yeah. Um, is there like the, a study about checkpoint? Um, okay, checkpoint. Yeah, right. So here, here, let's bring checkpoint into this. So um, the signal transduction pathway in its simplest form involves the activation of a very gigantic protein called ATM, which stands for ataxia telangiectasia mutation, or muta and really your and it, the the person who cloned this was a fantastic scientist in Israel called Yossi Shilo who is working with families, um, both Arabic and Israeli families, and Arabic and Jewish families in Israel, who, who, this was another genetic syndrome, just like the Lee Fermani one I described to you earlier. And he realized that they, that they and he, he did some, at the time, brilliant sort of detective work finding the gene for ATM. And then once they had the gene, you could study the protein. It turned out the protein itself is a protein kinase, and it phosphorylates checkpoint kinases. There's mm -hmm. checkpoint kinase 1 and checkpoint kinase 2. ATM phosphorylates checkpoint kinase 2, and it turns out that both ATM 
and checkpoint kinase 2, phosphorylate P53 and MDM2. And they get activated when, when uh, there's a break in DNA. And so there's a huge field of studying DNA repair and DNA damage and DNA repair. It's incredibly mm -hmm. important, not only for cancer, but it's extremely important in cancer, but also for other diseases like neurodegenerative diseases as well. And aging as oh, well. Yeah. It's a good topic too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good topic. Wow. Yeah. It's a really intricate. Like, yeah, I've just given you a crash course in P fifty three. This is really great. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um well, I hope someday you'll take my cancer course. I'd love to. I yeah. look forward to that. Um, and finally, just uh, one more topic. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about mevalonid pathway. Aha, uh -huh, yes. Um, so what I didn't tell you is that most tumor suppressors, another tumor suppressor that I mentioned briefly to you was retinoblastoma, mm -hmm. RB. And RB was first discovered as a, I'm not going to get into the history of the RB mm -hmm. discovery, but it was really through the work on RB that the concept of tumor suppressors actually developed by a scientist who's unfortunately passed away a few years ago named Alfred Knudsen. And he was studying patients who either familiarly, familially, in other words, it was in the family, had this RB predisposition or just, you know, sporadic people who had this rather rare kind of cancer. And as a result of that, he came up with this concept called two-hit kinetics. I also teach that in my course. Um, uh, but the point is that the concept of tumor suppressor in its simplest form is that either the protein or its function has to be lost in order for a cancer to develop. And in the vast majority of so there's not p53 and rb are not the only tumor suppressors there's dozens of them and and for example colon cancer um, has a key um, tumor suppressor called apc many of these tumor suppressors um, they really are lost in cancer either the gene is deleted or there's a mutation in the protein such that it either makes a very unstable fragment of the protein that's at the full length P53 is quite different in that way. The mo the there is a class of mutations. First of all, at least 80% of the mutations in P53 are what we call missense mutations. I don't know if you've under had how much of that you've had in biology, but <clears throat> missense mutations are the mutation of a single amino acid in the protein, but you get a full-length protein. And so the majority of P53 mutations, 80%, are missense mutations, and of those missense mutations, there's a small collection, maybe five or six, that are mutated with very high frequency, and they're called hotspot mutations because they're kind of hotspots <laughs> in the protein. And um, these hotspot mutations, we believe, are not are the ones that are really oncogenic. Okay, I'm, I'm making I'm simplifying, but mm -hmm. that's the general view now. So, so the, again, genetic proof of this came from studies in mice. So what they did was instead of knocking P53 out of the mouse, they knocked in um, these hotspot mutants. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you don't you get different kinds of cancers than if you knock it out. So in its for, in its simplest sense, that's formal proof of what we call an oncogenic gain of function. It's gain of function. Mm -hmm. So. Um, 
so the so an MD PhD student in my lab about 10 years ago a little more than that mm -hmm. I got very interested in gain of function and collaborating with a former postdoc in the lab named Jill Barganetti who's a professor at um, Hunter College um, Jill had made cell lines where you could modulate the levels of mutant p53 in breast cancer cell lines these are cell lines derived from women who had breast cancer and they and um, these were very well studied cell lines um, and so you could treat the cells with uh, an agent called doxycycline and the levels of p53 would go way down and he discovered that when he did that with these cell lines that they uh, and put them into a, a, a sort of a growth situation where they actually form clusters of cells that look like little tumors mm -hmm. that the tumors got much smaller he then um, collaborated with a group of people I was the PI of a program project grant um, of people studying p53 in the uh, in New York and New, New Jersey and working with them we did at the time uh, sort of a, a transcriptome analysis and the pathway that was mutated with very high frequency when you knock down p53 was what's known as the mevalonic pathway mm -hmm. so what is the mevalonic pathway this is the pathway by which it's famous for the following reason it's the pathway by which cells synthesize cholesterol okay so it so a pathway means protein a or, or enzyme a catalyzes a reaction that produces a product the product of that reaction is then changed to a second project by a second enzyme so there's about 17 ends there's about 17 components in the mevalonic acid pathway it's and the end product one of the end products of this is cholesterol so mm -hmm. it, um, and it, the the, um, the working out the whole intricacies of this pathway was the Nobel Prize winning work of two scientists uh, Michael Brown and Joseph Goldstein and in the 80s I think mm -hmm. um, as a result of this pathway drug companies realized that it's a way we might be able to treat hypercholesterolemia which is a very common um, precursor to heart disease oh. and they developed a class of drugs they call statins I don't know you must have heard of me if you haven't heard of statins you will have heard of them mm -hmm. they're really blockbuster drugs and they target one of the early enzymes, one of the early steps in this pathway. Um, but anyways, and so we actually found that if you, uh, collaborating with our colleague in um, Sloan Kettering, if you treat mice with statins and set them up with a protocol um, whereby the mice get liver cancer, they don't get liver cancer. So it's actually protective. And there are indeed a lot of... Um, epidemiological studies in humans mm -hmm. um, which link liver cancer which link statins to uh, as protective against liver cancer liver cancer is actually a big deal in China um, but there's a link the the problem is complicated by the fact that there's a viral link too so there are certain viruses called hepatitis B and hepatitis C viruses I think mm -hmm. that also cause liver cancer but they, it seems that these statins do seem protective to some extent mm -hmm. based on clinical trials, meta-analysis. So that's what we know. We're still working on the mevalonic pathway. So basically, um, 
Will's work showed that mutant P53 can upregulate the mevalonic pathway. And furthermore, he found, and a postdoc in our lab named Aja Guzman are still working on this, have found that mutant P53 can regulate properties of cells that are, make them more oncogenic. For example, the ability to, in, to leave a tumor and then invade out of it because the most deadly aspect of cancer is metastasis, not actually having a tumor itself. And she, and she found, and he, that, and she is finding, that their ability to regulate metastasis requires the mevalonic acid pathway in some way. So I could get into more details about that, but I don't know if it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. But we're still very interested in it. And just, oh, and by the way, a few years after Will discovered that mutant P53 upregulates it, uh, a postdoc in the lab <clears throat> who's now left the lab for its job, named Sungwon Moon, a fantastic scientist, found that wild-type P53 represses the mavalonic pathway. And this happens a lot. It's what we call yin-yang of, mm-hmm. of P53. Whatever wild-type does, the mutant does the opposite. And whatever the mutant does, the wild-type does the opposite. So if there's certain oncogenic processes that the mutant stimulates, we often, we and others, find that wild-type P53 actively represses these, these um, processes. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's like you're really taking one thing, but like having this one It's one gene multiple. that has all these amazing properties. Wow. And we still don't understand fully what, what, you know, how it's doing it. Wow. And like speaking of like, your current research, um, do you, where do you see the research on like P53 and mevalonate and all this going? Well, mevalonic pathway is just an offshoot. There's, a, there's many other processes that it regulates. One interesting thing about the mevalonic pathway is it's not just that it, because it makes cholesterol, which causes, you know, plaques that cause arterial sclerosis, but also offshoots of this pathway are needed for, they produce, um, molecules um, called isoprenoids that are needed to attach oncogenes to the oncogene products to the membrane and we actually think that's the uh, the, the process that mutant p53 needs in order to stimulate um, invasion type properties um, where p53 is going in general well i mean the good news about p53 is that we understand very deeply how it works there's been structures solved of the protein we know exactly at the you know atomic level what the dna binding domain its structure is how it gets disrupted when, with mutants and so on um, the bad news is that there's so far no drug in the clinic that can actually be harnessed except for one not, which is now just happening now. There is one and only one mutation at Y220, if you're interested, which I, you shouldn't be, mm-hmm. um, that produ- when it's mutated to another residue that actually produces a very specific shape, cleft in the structure. And small molecules have been first isolated in silico, but then generated by you know organic synthesis. And they actually bind to that cleft and they can convert that mutation into uh, that mutant into a wild type, into a normal, and actually get, get it to do uh, wild type P53 activities like kill cells. Mm. And so there, that is those that particular molecule is now in clinical trials with some very encouraging beginnings. The other aspect of 
clinical outcome of, M of P53 has been to try to target MDM2's ability to degrade P53. And the idea is that there are many tumors, as I said, it's highly frequently mutated, but there's lots and lots of cancers that don't have mutant P53. And, and some of these have very high levels of MDM2. And the idea is if you could release P53 from MDM2 in those tumors, you might be able to activate it to kill the tumors. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's a great idea, and there's about 12 companies working on these molecules, and um, uh, I won't get into the you know, ins and outs of who's doing it and what yeah. and so on, but there's a problem with that, which is, as I said, um, if you didn't have MDM2 in your tissues, the P having excess P53 would kill you. So I can see already you're getting it where I'm getting to. It's not only can you kill the tumor, but you can have do a lot of damage to the normal tissues mm -hmm. in the patients. And in fact, they're seeing, it turns out it's not quite as drastic as you think, but, the, but there is toxicity associated with this that's linked to um, what they call hematopoietic to toxicity. It really has a pretty bad effect on you know, your circulating cells. So they're trying to figure out how to target. One of the big challenges in cancer research in general would be how do you target something specifically to a tumor and not hit normal cells? Mm, right. And there's a link between P53 and immune therapy now, which is a whole other topic. Wow. Yeah. It's those things like there's a lot of like exciting directions to go. I think there's those. a lot of exciting directions, and people yeah. are still working hard on this protein. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's sort of the more you learn. The less you know, essentially. It's true, yeah. <laughs> and for, I mean, for, I guess, for our interested listeners who is curious about this field, um, do you have any advice for students looking to get involved or young scientists out well, there? It's a, it's a very important question. I mean, I'm not saying that, P, that all young scientists should work on P53, but there's tons of really important questions um, in cancer research in general that are not only fascinating, but could actually have a, a real impact on, you know, treatment of people with cancer. Yeah. That's where, I, that's where I, I, I would encourage everybody to think about cancer research. Or brain, for that matter, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if they want to work on the third floor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was super informative and like, yeah, it, was it was an great. amazing discussion. Yeah. Um, and with that, we have come to the end of our podcast episode today. <laughs> Professor Freeves, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's been my pleasure.